as we all connect with our families this holiday season, however that looks for you, I wanted to bring you a special Thanksgiving edition of the podcast. I thought about what our conversations around the dinner table usually look like on Thanksgiving. We talk about our favorite moments we're thankful for from the year, as well as what we're looking forward to in the future. To connect with that theme today on the podcast, I figured while we're away for Thanksgiving break, we should share some of our favorite moments from the podcast this year, as well as some of our favorite moments from the future that make us feel joyful and excited. So please enjoy this edition of the podcast and happy Thanksgiving. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis and this is my podcast. It's the place where we talk about anything and everything. Business, health, culture, history. What's your favorite movie from the 90s? What's your supplement stack got in it? It's a space where I ask guests to get personal. What's their Enneagram? How do they deal with failure? How do they parent? No matter the topic, we always go there. I'm all about unpacking the things that make you, you, and finding out the tips that will help all of us to level up our life. This is inspiring. This is real. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I feel like it's super important, because, especially because I don't know how joyful work is going to be for all of us. Right. For a hot minute. It's true. And if you're just sitting there staring at your screen, obsessing it, you're, you're not, you're going to be creatively depleted. You're not going to be coming up with great ideas. You're not going to see solutions. You're just going to see all of the problems. And so it's more important than ever to like, that's why I took up composting. That's why I planted tomatoes. Well, you know, also if the world ends, I will be able to grow my own food. So <laughs> and you'll have pasta important. sauce. Thank God. So exactly. that's a big deal. I will have pasta sauce. Tell me what you think about this. One of the things when you and I started talking about working from home that I was thinking just like the little tactical things, what do you think about doing a load of laundry in between calls and um, cleaning out a drawer here or there Ooh. or right? The, these are the things that if someone hasn't worked from home, their daily chores in their house are going to pull them into them. Like they're going to be screaming at them. about that before. I am, my gut is like, no. No, right? Just, okay. For me, I have to be super in, I, I, I really am best when I am focused in my work. Yes. So if I'm going to write, then I need to write in a batch. If I'm going to do conference calls, I want a conference call in a batch. Uh, so the idea of, you know, being on this podcast with you and then running and throwing a load of laundry in it actually would be very distracting for me. Now, so, for the record, yeah. some people might be saying, uh, Rachel or even Amy, like you guys have extra help and other people can do your laundry and da da da. I don't have extra help right now. I'm I just wanted to point that out to everybody. Yes. yes. <laughs> Mama is doing it all. We are doing laundry. We are cleaning out the trash. We are doing the whole thing. Yes. But I also, like, man, if we're entrepreneurs, like if the business isn't successful, then none of the other stuff, like we can't have the house, we can't have the 
groceries where you can't have those things. And so that feels like a huge focus of time and attention for me. Yep. Um, and I'm still definitely doing, I'm just doing them in the evening or in the morning before I sit down to work. It's not to say that I'm not doing those things. I'm just allowing them to kind of rest and pile up. Now, I also understand that I have older kids who are able to entertain the toddler. And I know not everybody has that. I know there are single parents. I know there are people who have toddlers that they're trying to manage and work at the same time, which is a whole other beast. And I've never done that myself. So the only thing that I could give you is hypothetical, which is how do you work the work schedule around when the kids are occupied? Um, So I spent a little time on Sunday pulling some different like craft things that I knew the kids could do, like that we already had these supplies and that it would occupy, okay, I can get an hour chunk of Ford color painting these rocks for the new garden. I can, I can have him occupied in these ways, but if you don't have that option and you do need to work from home, does it look like as much as this sucks, you have to get up early before the kids wake up and get in a few great hours of focus time and then when the baby goes down for a nap, you try, you know, it, you're going to have to get creative and you're going to have to be, if you're working for another company, really communicative with them about what it's going to take for you to pull off this work from home because you working from home and the preschool being closed and like, it's going to be hard. It's yes. It's straight up going to be super hard to do. I love what you just said. I thought that was really important about, uh, if you are working from home for somebody else and your kids are home and life does not look anything like you thought it would, you do need to communicate like, hey, I'm 100% on board. I'm doing this work from home thing, but I've got two, three kids at home. And so here's what's going on. I think that one, employers are very sensitive to that right now. But if you don't say anything and one, you just get bitter about it or two, you just try to do it all and like literally kill yourself over it. No one's winning there. So I think we all need to start over communicating right now. It took me a very long time to understand that what I wanted for my life was the most important, that what my husband wanted for me or what my parents wanted for me or even what my children would wish for me is not as important or valuable as what I want. And that is maybe, I don't know if your community would say this, but my community that that's radical. That's a radical notion for them. Oh, it's radical. They could <laughs> want something for themselves yeah. without anybody else getting uh, to to have an opinion inside of that. Well, I think selfish is the most powerful word of tribal shaming, and tribal shaming is the most powerful means of controlling people. Um, and and so also, who's calling you that? impacts um how heavily it lands on you right so like if somebody's calling me that in an instagram comment i'm like yeah whatevs you know like if a family member is calling me that um that's more that's more troubling and that's more painful like how close you are to me is is what's gonna is what's gonna really harm it but i think um that the word selfish is is a way to tell is really just a way to tell women to stay in their lane um, and, and it's a very powerful tool of control. I stayed in my very unhappy marriage for probably three more years of my precious life. Um, because that word used against me could just put me right back in my lane. You know, it's like, you know, it got me, it sat me right back down on my heels, you know, um, until, until really it was a choice of, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this facetiously, but I am either going to kill myself or I have to leave. 
Um, and, and so I think what I've come to now is I'm not so worried about that word anymore because I know my own heart and I know that I'm a, a kind and loving and generous person whose, whose intention would never be to cause harm to anybody. Um, I also know that I'm, I'm, I'm in earth school and I'm a student and I'm learning. <laughs> so there's a mercy that I show to myself on that. Um, but I also know that, I mean, I don't know this, but this is how I see it. I, I feel like if I had to take a guess at, at how the universe works in this way, my own personal theology is that I was given one soul to take stewardship over and to take care of, and it's my own. It would appear to be because it's the one I spend all my time with, right? So it would appear that this is the one that's my responsibility because I've had it for my whole life. And, and, and I don't remember asking for it, but I was given, they gave me this body. They gave me these talents. They gave me these mental illnesses. They gave me these obstacles. They gave me these character defects. Um, they gave me this whole sort of software system. And I like to think, when I say they, I mean like whatever mysterious forces run the universe. I like to think that they gave Liz to me, to the one we call Liz, that they gave her to me to take care of because they believed that I could. Um, and so I like to show that I can by taking really good care of her. And I didn't always do that. I, uh, what I used to do was take care of everybody else <laughs> so that they would say that I was good and a good girl and definitely that they would not say that I was selfish. Um, but my stewardship, I don't think my stewardship is over everyone's opinions. I think my stewardship is over this being. And I've also learned that if I don't take care of her, no one else can. I mean, nobody else. Stewardship means I accept that this one is mine. Um, and a lot of my um, good guesses <laughs> earlier in my life were about trying to find people who would do that for me trying to find people who would take stewardship over me and keep me safe and keep me happy and keep me reassured and keep me feeling good. And some people made really mighty efforts. It's not like I've, you know, I've had some really lovely people in my life who have certainly gone the extra mile to try to take care of me, but I don't think anymore that it's their job. Um, and, and just even in the last few years, something about turning 52 and having really curated a relationship with this being that we call Liz and the amount of affection that I have for her now. Um, this real sense of friendship. Like we talk a lot about self-love, but it's such a lofty aim and it's so high and out of reach. Friendship would just be great. Like a sense of, like just a general sense of friendliness towards yourself. And I'm a really good friend, you know? So now my friendliness is primarily toward her. Um, and an example of that is a, a relationship that I ended um, where I, it, it wasn't working for me. <laughs> you know? I can just put it right. And I don't need to go into the details about who it was or when it was. Um, but I could feel myself going into that lockdown mode of you've got to make this work. You've got to make this work because you've put so much effort into it already because people's hopes are up, because your hopes are up, because you're living together now, because you've come this far, because you want to prove that you can, you know, all of these like heavy cinder blocks of, of responsibility on myself. And I just remember one night um, trying to explain in a very sober way, trying to explain to this person how to look after me when I was feeling anxious 
um, and and not in a hysterical way, but just really almost like the operating instructions. Like this is how you this is how you operate a Liz. <laughs> if you want to have one in your life. If you want to have one in your life, she comes with all these great things, but she also has this thing. But I also know myself well enough to know that I'm going to give you three things you can do that will totally work and make your Liz feel better instantly. And these are what they are. You know, like it was really like just breaking it down in the simplest way. And um, and this person was entirely unable to do any of them or even understand what I was talking about and um, got up to leave the room to do something. And I felt this small voice inside me say to me, please get me out of here. You know, and I said to her, I put my hand on my chest and I said out loud to her, I'm going to get you right out of here. And by the time that person came back in the room, I was dressed and sitting on the edge of the bed. And I said in a very clear voice, just want to let you know that the romantic and sexual aspect of this relationship is over (laughs) and it's got nothing and you're lovely, but I need to get her out of here now because this is a really bad environment for her to be in and she's my responsibility. Um, she's my responsibility because I, and for reasons I will never know, I was given stewardship over this one and I've got to go take care of her now. And I wish you well, where's my coat, you know, (laughs) 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 kind of like that. And now if this were 20 years ago, I would have stayed in that for, I would have put myself through years more of that. Um, but I just, Mm -hmm. I'm quicker now to be like, oh no, this is a tanking situation, not a thriving situation. And I also know that I, I can leave. I can leave people. I can leave situations. I can leave places because I know that I can create a warm and loving environment for Liz. So mm-hmm. I don't need to stay anywhere. <laughs> and when I was younger, I didn't know that. I thought I needed to stay here to get warmth. I needed to stay there to get love. I needed to stay here to get an affirmation. I don't need to stay anywhere. Yeah. Like I can do this. <laughs> I can really provide for her. Um, you know, and I don't mean provide, I can provide for her materially, but I mean, I can, I can take really good, friendly care of this being who has been put into my hands. And then I can choose where to go, when to leave. And it's such a different world than the one I was in a quarter of a century ago, where Mm -hmm. all of that had to come from the outside. And all of that had to come from the approval of my family, my spouse, my neighbors, my friends. And, um, and I, and that voice was banging saying, please get me out of here. Please get me out of here. And I was suffocating her saying, you cannot exist. (laughs) Shut up, go back in your hole. (laughs) I'll bring you a crust of bread at midnight, you know, like, and now I, she, now I'm like, oh, sweetheart, let's go. You know, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go, baby? Let's get out of here. It's like, I'm my own Thelma and Louise. (laughs) (laughs) About four years ago, I got to go see you and Liz Gilbert at Wanderlust in L.A. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know it was four years ago because I got to interview her on the podcast this summer. And when I uh, I keep journals, I always have notebooks with me. And so I opened my notebook to that day's notes. And it was four years and a day from when I got to talk to her and I had sat in the audience and watched you guys speak, which feels like (laughs) witchy and cool. And I still don't know what it means, but it means something. And you both were so awesome and so much fun. And there is this line, and I've heard you say it more than once that I all, I truly have thought about so many times over the years where you talk about standing on holy ground and, you know, 
the shoes were not removed because the ground was holy. It was because he realized the ground had always been holy. Do you know the story yeah. that I'm referencing? <laughs> yeah. uh, will you tell that? I mean, I know it's a terrible segue, but it is one of my favorites. And I think it, I really do. I, I want you to know this, how often, you know, back when we get, when we got to have events and we would have, we have big conferences, 8,000 women, you know, come for a weekend and um, the amount of times that I'm standing backstage and I'm thinking the ground has always been holy yeah, um, because of this story. So will you share that with the listeners? Oh, yeah. Is this about the what happened to me when I was twenty one and then uh-huh. Moses? Yeah. Talking about that. Yes. <laughs> well, I was I was restless. I had all this adolescent angst and energy. I was never a very good student. I don't know about you. I I just somebody telling me what I had to do just made me mental. So there was always somebody better. There was always a better. Stu- There's always somebody more popular who knew where the parties were. There was always a better student. Always better athletes. It's like I lived in this world that was ranked and. There was always a ranking. And then I got into college and I got in this band. And for the first time I could write these songs. And it was like, God, I could, there was something about taking what I was experiencing and giving words to it. And then the tribal, like you talk about your events, there was something as like a 19 year old about a, we would do these punk rock shows and there was something tribal and communal. Like, God, I was made for, I don't even know what this is, but I was made to like gather people and say these things and people would sing the lyrics back. Then the band broke up as bands always do in college. And I was teaching water skiing in Wisconsin like you do. And there was this chapel service for college students. And I have volunteered to give the sermon. What's a sermon? I mean, like the sermon for me always raised the existential question, what's for lunch? It was just some guy in a sweater vest talking about stuff that whatever. But I somehow connected with being in that band, the lead, I was the lead singer with, oh, the sermon is an art form. It's like a long lost art form. Oh, I'm going to try that. So I volunteered and I got up to give this talk. I had no idea what I was doing. I had like, what? <laughs> it's just such a bizarre. And I got up and I immediately took off my Birkenstocks because I had this awareness that I, that I was on holy ground and that my life was never going to be the same again. It was like, help people access the big mysteries of life. That's, that's what you're here to do through this art form. So there's this ancient story about Moses when he sees the burning bush. He doesn't take his sandals off because suddenly the ground is holy. He takes his sandals off because he realizes the ground has been holy the whole time and he's just now waking up to it. So this is the invitation for all of us. You're waking up to the sacred gift that is your life. Uh, and you get these moments where you're like, Everything's okay. It's not isolated. Despair comes from isolation. This event exists disconnected in space and time from other events. It doesn't, it's, so this is why someone will say, I'm just a mom. I just sell insurance. I'm just a teacher, which means there's just this act I do. And it has no larger contextual web of meaning, but the moments of joy, peace, serenity, the moments when we go, oh, this is what it's all about are always moments when whatever you're engaged in is you sense it taking place within some larger field of meaning, reverence. You get a lump in your throat, the hair on the back of your neck, right? You get like a, some sense that all of this is actually connected with all the rest of it. Yeah. And that's, that's the great task in the modern world is the ancients were much more tuned into this. They saw their lives taking place within like a larger 
drama. But for so many people, it's it's a garage door that opens, the car goes in, the door closes. It's all separated units, which is why you gather the people that you do. We we know that this system that is telling us that we, if we just bought more stuff, it'd be okay. We know this system is aligned against the very things that make us feel most alive. Mm. Yeah. So I've heard it three times now and it's still just as good. (laughs) Well, well, that's very kind of you, but it still moves me. And that's actually, that's the ancient art is to becoming to see all of your life as sacred. Do you, um, you said that it just made me think of um, spiritual practices and the idea of if you're, if your life is sacred and you're able to make any moment, any part of it, a a spiritual and sacred practice in your life. Is that something that I feel like, I think I know you, even though I've never met you before. So I feel (laughs) like you would be the kind of person that would do that. Is that, do you approach life in that way? (laughs) Yeah, but it's also at the heart of that, it's going to be honesty. So even this past six months, there are days that are just like this day. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm done. So Fine. honesty, Fine. so doubt, rage, bitterness, despair, hopelessness, some days a feeling of lostness. Um, of course, you're a human being. Anger and you don't even know towards what. Yes. So, so the first thing is to learn to be the observer of the experience you're having. For many people that, uh, let's think, okay, like in these days we're living in, overwhelmed or anxiety becomes I'm anxious. Right. And the subtle shift to, oh, look, anxiety. So just learning to observe. Like you mentioned, you carry a notebook around and just even the basics of writing out, okay, today I'm angry with this person, this person. Today I feel like just getting it all out is actually an act of observing it. And what that does is more and more grounds you in the you that can observe you having the experience. Mm. For many people, the only you is the you that's overwhelmed by whatever it is. So the practice is getting better and better at observing it. Because then the question becomes, who's observing it? There's some you. There is some infinite, indestructible Rachel who is observing Rachel having these experiences. And the more time you are grounded in that infinite, indestructible you, then that's that's like a center. Oh, wow. I am like, I am jumpy today. I mean, it takes nothing for me to fly. Okay. I wonder what that is. Interesting. I'm curious, and I think you can answer this as a historian or just as a woman. Um, when you find the pieces of your family history, of your ancestry, all of us have, like you said, stories that are beautiful and inspiring and give us strength. And then there are stories that are painful or could cause shame. And so I'm curious, do you sort of hold both of those together? Do you focus on the pieces that give you strength? Do you? How do you reconcile both pieces of that. I mean, the thing that makes me ask that question is my family's Southern on both sides, which means that we go back, we're on the wrong side of the war across the board. That is my family history. Now, is there, are there strength in our story? Is there beauty? The immigrant story and coming here and those pieces that I find pride in? Absolutely. But it's not the whole truth if I don't also own the parts of that that are awful and wrong 
and under it's like if you can't look at that then how in the world are you supposed to do better how do you hold both of those things or do you try and focus on the ones that empower you you know for a long time i i was personally stumped by that um and when i would discover something difficult i'm the kind of person who would put it away or you know, close the file on my hard drive and think about it for a long time. But if you remember, there's so many things to remember about Barack Obama's early presidency. But one of the things that happened when President Obama uh, was elected was that strangers went and did his family history. Right. So there's a thing that can happen. Right. You didn't ask the question. He didn't ask the question. But people went ahead and investigated his family history. And among his mother's forebears were small slaveholders. And, you know, people held that up to Barack Obama as if that would shake him or that would be an indictment or that would somehow compromise who he was. Okay. But what Obama said is that's American history, right? That's American history. We are Americans, you know, at least I'm an American, right? And, and that's our history. And our history includes the possibility that I am descended from enslaved people and I am descended from slaveholders. And honestly, for me, his steadiness in the face of that revelation, which was not his revelation um, at all, it was somebody else, you know, kind of sensationalizing his family, but his calmness and his centeredness in that really helped me to appreciate that, you know, in some ways history is history. Um, And it's ours, I think I'm butchering a quote from Jill Lepore, but, you know, the world is ours to make. And, you know, and I feel the same, like I'm here, I'm an American with all that complexity, with all that seeming contradiction, with a lot of pain and a lot of ugliness, along with a lot of beauty and joy, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere and I'm not going to dress that history up to make you comfortable or fit in to some narrative that you have because we're here to make the future, the present and the future. And I guess that's my response to you, right? Even as you are someone, as, and these are your words, not mine, right? On the wrong side of something historically. The, the question is, what do we do with that now? What do we do with that for the future? That's our charge as human beings. But we can do that looking with a clear eye at where we come from. Yes. Well, that makes me think of, I don't know if when you're writing, you do this, I kind of start with questions that I have, and then I will ponder them or research them for a long time before I will ever speak about them publicly. So I'm going to ask a question that I've been wondering, putting it out there that I don't have any answers, but it is something that I've been thinking, which is, what has the perception been? What has the relationship been historically between white women and black women? Because I think in history, what we have done and how we've interacted with people will set the tone for everything that comes after unless you actively work to change that narrative. And so I have wondered, which is awesome because this is our conversation today, we're specifically talking about voting rights, but 
I have wondered how that manifests into the relationships that we see today or the anger that we see today, or often there are words that are ascribed to black women that are not ascribed to white women when they are, in my opinion, trying to stand up for themselves, trying to speak openly and honestly, trying to share their frustration or their anger or their pain, and then sort of get opposition from other women who are not women like them. And I just wondered how much of that is historical, is something that has manifested again and again. I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, but I was wondering if all the way back to the time of pre-Civil War and sort of the role that white women played in turning a blind eye, pretending they didn't see what was happening, or being complicit in what was happening, and how much then that manifests in, in, in relationships we have today. Did that make any sense at all? Well, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. But, I, but I'm going to try because I think it's a really important question. I think one of the ways that historians explain how the long life of racism is that racism ex- exists in structures but it also exists in what historians call um, common sense. It exists in habit. It exists in attitudes. And I think in our own lives, we can appreciate that while it can be difficult to see the structures, right, that promote and encourage and the structures that racism is embedded in, we do have a sense of the ways in which the common sense, the habit is something that we inherit and that is passed along. And historian Ariella Gross has written about this in a book called What Blood Won't Tell. And what she looks at is judges and courts. And she explains how even judges, you know, who are bound by the rule of law, who have access to science and the best thinking, rely on common sense a great deal of the time when they approach questions of race and racism and racial identity. And it's striking the way in which we make sense of the world and we use ideas that are passed along to us in very informal ways. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. But you asked me about my own research, and I'll tell you something that as I was trying to write a history of women in the vote, Black women in the vote, I got very distracted, or at least I thought it was initially, when the women I was reading about kept talking about a place called the ladies' car. So here we are in the 19th century, public transportation is segregated by custom, later by law, and there are on streetcars and certainly on railroads, literal cars set aside for ladies. And these are places where there's no smoking and where um, there's no cursing and there are very few men unless they're escorting women. And women pay a premium to sit in these cars and Black women, when they travel, look to sit in these cars also because they don't want to sit in the smoker car where the billows are filling the car with literal smoke, where men are drinking and carousing. There's a lot going on on a railroad in the 19th century. (laughs) But the women I write about again and again talk about the ladies' car. Why? Because even when they buy a ticket, even when they are, you know, you know, correctly um, comporting themselves as middle-class women, um, they are again and again harassed, denigrated, and oftentimes physically ejected from the ladies' car. And almost any Black woman activist from the 1850s, almost till the eight, 1950s, will tell a story about a confrontation on a railroad, on a streetcar, on a steamship. So my, my question is like, what's going on here? Because I'm interested in the vote, but it goes to your point. 
part of what they're telling us is about this discrimination, right? But part of what they're telling us is that white women watch. Mm -hmm. White women watch. I could only find one example of an instance when a black woman, when she's harassed by a conductor, um, one example in which someone speaks up for her. Mm. And the person just speaks, just shouts, doesn't actually intervene. And that has never left me. You know, how do we see each other when we recognize that we have witnessed, right? That white women um, have witnessed denigration, the discrimination, and these things, the violence that is meted out at black women when they refuse to give up their seats. Men come, put their hands on these women, drag them, right? Brutalize them um, rather than let them ride in the ladies' car. And people watch, including the white women in the ladies' car, they watch. And I think we're maybe only coming to a reckoning, right, with what it has meant, right, for some women to be brutalized and other women to watch. That might even be a metaphor um, that is useful to us in the 21st century. Thank you for that story, because I love the perspective. The next thing, the next question that I get when I tell people how I figure out my word count is they're like, how do you know what to write? If you have to write 500 words a day, how do I know what to write when I kind of run out of ideas? And years ago, when I used to go to author conferences and conventions, which yes, is a thing, and I miss it so much. I miss it because of quarantine. I miss it because there was a time in my life where I could go to something like that in obscurity, you know, and again, I feel like this sounds kind of douchey and I don't mean it to, but back in the day, I would go to an author conference and nobody knew or cared who I was. So I just like would go there and go to every class and take all the notes and meet my author friends in the bar for cocktails later. And it was truly some of my favorite times of the year. And for my fellow authors who are listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. But I don't have the obscurity now to just sort of go and, you know, take notes, right? So I keep thinking that I'm going to devise a plan someday when we're allowed to go to conferences again. And I'm like, go in full costume and maybe nobody will know it's me, but that is completely besides the point. Let's get back to it. How do you know what to write next? So back when I used to go to conferences, the very first time I went, I heard about this concept of plotters versus pantsers. And the idea is that there are two kinds of writers, plotters who lay out the entire plot before they ever start writing the first word, and pantsers who fly by the seat of their pants, meaning they make up the story as they go along. I am a pantser. So I have very dear friends who are really celebrated, incredible authors who will research a book for two years and draft out, like figure out the skeleton of it for literally years before they ever write the first sentence. I have never plotted anything. And maybe right now, some of you are like, yeah, we've read your books. We know you don't plot. <laughs> it's just not my style. I tend to just start and see where the characters want to take me or see where the words want to take me. And I can't 
tell you how many times in my career that I've been writing something and I have no idea where I'm going and then I get to the end or sort of get to a chapter towards the end and it all it all comes together again. And I think that's because our subconscious knows where we're headed even if we don't know what the heck we're doing. So I feel like our subconscious is kind of in the background working things out for you and you just have to trust the process to get the words down, to get the content down so that you know what you're working with. Which brings me to literally the best advice I could ever give you as an author is to let your first draft be a dumpster fire. Like, let it be so awful. So when I tell people about my word count, they'll always, like, when I'll be like, oh, I, I you know, I wrote 10,000 words. They'll be like, how did you write 10,000 words in a day? And I'm like, oh, I never said they were good words. I never said they made sense. I just get the words down. I truly believe that a book is not born in a first draft. A book is born in a rewrite. It's born in the edit. It really becomes something. It really starts to sing when you rework it. And because I know that I'm going to rework it, I allow myself to have that first attempt be crappy. And I I pay attention often to what other creators or artists do with their work. I think about comedians. I'm fascinated by comedians and the fact that a comedian who has like a stand-up special on like Netflix or HBO or whatever, when you see that hour, what I've learned in listening to podcasts and reading their books is that they started developing that hour-long set two years before. So two years before, they started going to like a crappy comedy club and trying out three jokes two of which bombed and one got a chuckle. And then they'll like work with that one joke. Okay, that got a chuckle. How can I get, you know, half the room to laugh? Okay, how can I keep playing with it and get the whole room to laugh? And that is how they build a set. It takes them some a year, some two years. It's a fascinating process. And I think it's very similar, at least for me as an author, that I really allow that first thing to just be garbage because nobody's going to read it but me and my editor, and they know that it's going to be garbage, so nobody's surprised by this process. There is a total freedom in letting yourself say whatever you want to say. I find that when I go back and do a reread, there are moments that I'm like so embarrassed that I wrote because they just don't even make sense. They're gobbledygook. And then there are moments that I'm pleasantly surprised by. Like, oh, that's a cool thought. Let me let me expand on that or let me, you know, explain it in a different way. And I'm really proud of that nugget that was buried underneath this crap pile of bad, awful sentences and terrible grammar. But I would have never gotten that nugget if I hadn't allowed myself to do this thing first. If I hadn't allowed myself to be bad. You know, I was watching a documentary. This is like, this has nothing to do with writing, but everybody should go watch this documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's so good and so terrifying, especially if you have kids. It's about the effects of social media 
uh, and how they have changed the culture and how they have changed the way that children and teenagers respond to the world around them. And the part that I found so fascinating is beyond the like horrifying statistics of the increase of uh, teenage girls who harm themselves, teenage girls who commit suicide, like those things have grown by over 100% since 2011, which was the invention of social media as we know it. But what I found so fascinating is that this generation, the one who grew up with social media, who got on social media in middle school, is way less likely to take a risk. They're way less likely to make new friends, to ask someone out on a date, to like social media has made kids today more terrified than ever of failure because they are only seeing the polished result. And while I don't think that most of the people listening to this podcast are, you know, teenagers, though if you are on here, hey, I do think that oftentimes as creators, we come up against the same kind of fear. We have the same attitude about our own creation as a 15-year-old who's afraid of putting a picture on Instagram. We have this idea that if it's not perfect, it doesn't deserve to exist. We are looking at other people's middle and comparing it to our beginning. We are looking at the authors, the creators, the artists, the comedians that we admire, and it keeps us from even trying, right? Like maybe you want to have a podcast and you listen to other people's podcasts and you're like, oh man, I don't sound like that or I don't know how to talk that way or my interview questions suck. Like, dude, go back and listen to my first podcast. They are so bad. Go back and read my first book. Like when we first start out doing these things, of course they're going to be terrible. That is how you start. You're never going to get to a place where you can create something good and then something great and then something awesome if you don't first allow yourself to suck. Honestly, I get so pissed off about this because I'm like, why do you think you're the one who just was going to get it the first time out? Like you write something and then you reread it and you're like, oh, this is so terrible. Like, why do you think you're the one who's going to miss the sucky beginnings? That is the price of admission. You want to get into the party? You want to be an author? You want your you want to hold your book in your hand? Great. Then you're going to have to let yourself suck. You're going to have to let yourself suck with with what gets published cuz your first book will is no way, nowhere, no how compared to your 10th book. But you are never going to get to your 10th book if you don't get to your first book. And you're never going to get to your first book if you won't allow yourself to have that crappy first draft. So just write it down. Now, here's a sneak peek of your faves faves with Todrick Hall. Are those VHS covers behind they you? Are, they're not just a cover, Rachel. Wow. I know. Oh my God. Yeah, so whatever movie you want to watch, you let me know and I got you, girl. I am here for this. I am so excited to hang out with you. I'm dead. I can't even believe you're in front of me right now. I'm so excited. 
And I feel like in my heart, I know what I want your list to be about. The premise of the show is you pick a category and you do a top five list in any category okay. that you feel. So, so about. then the category that, that we talked about was Broadway because I'm a huge Broadway fan. And if the lighting okay. was right, Rachel, I would take you over to the Broadway room in my house, but I don't want to, you know, like, Oh, I want to okay. make sure that no, you're, you look perfect. Keep it as is. Okay. I'm here for this. I did think that there was a chance you were doing top five Disney movies just based on the background that we're well, working I'm with always right now. ready to do that because I have both. Well, and my only other question is, is this list in order from what you believe is like, like, will we be leading up to the number one top or is it just a mixed bag? It's in no particular order. Well, it's in no particular order, but now that I'm thinking about it, I do want to just do my top five Disney movies because I love Disney just as much okay. as I love Broadway. So this is me going on the fly, Rachel. I like it. I like it. And I feel very strongly about this category. So I am going to also offer opinions back if that feels appropriate. Give me, we'll do no particular order because that feels too hard to like have them, Afterwards, you know, in numerical once order. Once I say them out loud, then we can do the order. Okay. Love every Disney movie, but if I'm being really, really like, like looking at all the movies, this really helps that they're all here. I think another one of my favorite movies is a goofy movie um, because... Tevin Campbell is everything to me. And before there was ever a Princess Tiana or any Black characters, I wanted to believe that like Max and Powerline were like- a, 100%. An, some 100%. type of ethnic, ethnic family, even though they were voiced by white characters, but definitely Powerline was African-American. And I really feel that Disney Plus should do like a live like films, like it's in the nineties, but with prosthetics, like in the same vein as The Grinch was filmed with Jim Carrey, yes. they should do a remake and make it feel yes. completely 90s-tastic um, of a Goofy movie. A um, Goofy movie is 100% one of the best movies they've ever done. Underrated. I've made my kids, right, and my kids don't get it. I've, made, I've tried many times. The amount of times I have watched that movie over and over, are, how old are you? <coughs> Sorry, oh I'll God. only ask because I feel like oh, you're saying Rachel. all of No, I'm, I'm saying I'm 35, no. I'm 35. Okay, I'm 37, so I'm like, I feel like we're at a similar age because there, there's a very specific time period for people who would have seen a Goofy movie. But the music is it. so freaking good. Oh, good. It's so good, and it's funny. It's super funny. Like, they go out in the woods, and Bigfoot's on the car, and they're trying to get him to go away. Like, it's so A little girl with well three done. teeth that's taking the photos. She's hilarious. Right. What a star. And right. then it does, I think she ends up at the same possum park later, or a very similar kid yes. with the same yes. two, two scouts. Yes, possum Oh Alice. my God, I love Come it. Um, so I used to like, I learned funny. how to yodel from that, from from watching that as a kid. Like I wanted yeah, to learn how to yodel so I could sing right. Lester's Possum Park. Um, and then just Tevin Campbell has one of the most iconic and legendary voices of all time. Like I just think his instrument is so like timeless and classic. So him singing the songs of Powerline, like he could sing anything and make it sound good. Right. But there's just something about 90s music that just makes me happy it's like when i hear always be my baby by mariah carey like no matter what mood yeah. i'm in i instantly become in a great great mood or if i listen to dream lover any of those songs like they make me feel it takes great you back 
Yeah. And so that that song, maybe it's just the nostalgia, but I just love the fashion. I like the way they dress. Um, I, I just love the girl who played like six on uh, Blossom, like the character yes. that she plays. Yes. Um, and I always am like quoting lines like it's the leading tower of Chiza. And like nobody thinks it's funny because nobody knows. But if they do, then that's a person that I immediately move up into like my imaginary MySpace right. top eight. Right, right, right. Like the Polly Shore moment of that, yes. which I forgot until you just said it right now. Because there was a moment in time where Polly Shore was a huge deal. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. So that, I love that movie. So so we have Hocus Pocus. We have okay. we have a goofy movie. We have Beauty and the Beast, classic. Now I have to think about Pixar and it's a really big toss-up for me. Join me every Wednesday when I hang out with a new celeb and we count down your faves, faves. This show premieres November 18th, so subscribe now and never miss an episode.